This episode comes with a content warning. On this episode, we are talking about self-harm and suicide in the context of the practice of execution by forced suicide. While what we're talking about would not meet the definition of self-harm or suicide that are recognized today, if these are topics you want to avoid hearing about, please feel free to skip this episode. No hard feelings. Please be good to yourself. Once upon a time, in a land far away, I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. I am personally super, super excited for the episode that we're doing today because I'm kind of going in as a blank slate, if you will. (laughs) Jeff is going to be taking the lead on this episode, which is wonderful because I have been doing so much research in like the last year that I, my brain definitely needed a cleanse. (laughs) Yeah. And we've kind of intended for me to take the lead more often than I have. Not, you know, like half the time or anything, but I think literally the only other time I've been the lead on an episode was another Japanese story with Momotaro. I think that you also took the lead on Mulan. Nope, you're right. I did. It's all Asian. Yeah. Which is which is interesting because one Jeff used to live in Japan. He mm-hmm. lived there for a couple years. But then, two, like a secondary interesting fact about Jeff, he's like super aware that he is like a white American man and that there is kind of like a weird stereotype about white American <laughs> men who really like Japanese stuff. And so he is always trying to like scoot away from that stereotype yeah. like as much as possible. Like, I'm not a so weeb, I swear. <laughs> So it is funny that you're like, oh, wait, the only stories that I've covered. Right. It's like, it's not making me look any less like one of those. What is a weeb? I think it's like weeaboo. It's just what they call like basically white people that want to be Japanese. Like weebs for sure. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm like, you you don't want to be Japanese. No, I am (laughs) not super into like anime and like manga and you know, stuff like that, that lots of, that those people are stereotypically into. Yeah. Like, I am into, like, Japanese history. I do like Japanese like, movies. But some of that is because I spent two years in Japan, and I learned Japanese, and it's cool to be like, oh, I can understand, like, 30% of what they're saying. That's nice. <laughs> when you watch Japanese movies. When I watch Japanese movies. And it's prob- that's I'm probably being very generous with myself to say 30% I understand, but... <laughs> But it is funny that usually, yeah, the stories that you've taken the lead on are from the, the Far East. From the Far East. So the next episode, we should have you do on like what? A very Ohio base. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Midwest United States. And it's relevant that you bring up the fact that I lived in Japan for a little bit because the first time I heard anything about the story that we're going to be telling today was while I was living in Japan and I was visiting with a guy who was super interesting. He was a fighter pilot 
And he lived in the United States for a long time at some American military base in Texas, like doing training and also like teaching training to American pilots. So he just had, he loved America. He loved hanging out with us and like speaking English and, you know, getting to keep that up because it's like he was, that was part of his background, you know, living in America. So he loved hanging out with Americans and talking about things, talking about Texas and being like, have you ever been to Austin or whatever? It's like, oh yeah, I have. My cousin used to live there. But the other interesting thing about him was that he was from kind of like a samurai lineage. And he was very, very proud of that. He practiced learning the techniques of like using a katana, like an actual real super sharp katana, like cutting through bamboo mats and stuff like that. Yeah. And so like in his house, I got to hold a 250-year-old katana that was like passed down in his family for generations. And then on the wall in his house, he had a sword also passed down through the generations that was like 450 years old. He's like, wow, that's super crazy. And so he was super into Japanese history, American culture, American history. And we were hanging out. We were going to visit a temple. And he was telling us all about Sengakuji, which is very important to the story of 47 Ronin because it's where the 47 Ronin and their master are buried and where they have a festival kind of celebrating them every year. And that's kind of where I first got my introduction to that story. And it's interesting because I bring that up because this, that's a true historical event. And we're not like a history podcast. What? Even though we do talk a lot about history, it's like we talk about folktales, fairy tales, myths, and legends. And I would say this kind of falls into the legend category. Because while it is a true historical event, the versions of the story that we're familiar with, especially the ones that were published in English until more recently, were not quite historically accurate. I love that. Not quite historically accurate. And there's a little bit of the fact that the people who were relating them to us were not from Japan. And maybe didn't understand things fully. But some of that too actually comes from the fact that within Japan, soon after this event took place, people started writing about it in quasi-historical ways or in fictionalized ways, making plays and poems and other things about it that were not so bound to the truth either. So it's very quickly started spreading the legend of what had happened, spread much more than the actual events so even throughout japanese history there's a different impression of what the story is than what really happened which i think is just fascinating and again it's like we have stuff like that in our oh yeah culture as well where we think of like george washington like chopped down a cherry tree and didn't lie it's like well that probably didn't actually ever happen yeah yeah um so it's just it's just really interesting to see that in another yeah culture Or even there are, like, stories from the battlefields of, like, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, that are, like, more well-known than others. Or, like, you know, stories that happen around a battle that, like, really happened, whether or not, you know, a narrative that was, like, off on the side that was passed down through families happened or not like we don't know yeah it's so even the story of like paul revere if people were being asked to like retell what they remember of the story of paul revere that they might have heard when they were in 
like sixth grade <laughs> yeah would probably differ from what historically was happening yeah with Paul Revere who was a real person and so it's interesting like how stories turn into like folk history and legend yeah. and so yeah it's very very interesting yeah and it just makes sense too because real life is very complicated and we want things to make sense. And sometimes things don't make sense either because we don't know all the facts or because, again, it's really complicated with a lot of moving pieces. Some things are just coincidence that seem like they happen for no reason. Yeah. So when you're trying to make a story out of it, whether it be a history or telling it as a story for entertainment, you're choosing the things that you put in, the things that you leave out, how you tell it to make it either interesting or flow and make sense or easier to understand or easier to remember. So yeah, it's just fascinating. But it's interesting because like even events like Columbine, which was like a big shooting that happened in America about, I think 20 years ago this year, something like that. Mm -hmm. There was this story of a girl that it circulated around of that. She was asked like, are you a Christian? Cause she was like, they saw her praying. Somebody asked one of the gunmen asked her if she was a Christian and she still said yes. And then was shot. And I mean, that story was circulating in the news and then it became like, uh, the a basis for like a movie and books and stuff like that. Even though when that original, that story had originally started circulating, through the news cycles, somebody did come forward and say that that wasn't what happened. That was there was a, there was a side story that had happened yeah. that day that had gotten mixed in with like the death of the other woman. And because those two stories had kind of ended up smushed together and people really latched on to that and it, it made this very sympathetic figure. Yeah. That story like took off and people still like to this day will like quote that story and mention that story of this like this girl who stood up for her religious convictions even in the face of these like gunmen. And I mean that is like a very it's a it's a faith affirming story if yeah. you're a person who is drawn to these like Christian faith affirming stories. And so it's a story that 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 continues and persists, even though historically it did not ever happen. Yeah. And that's actually really similar to something that happens with the story of the 47 Ronin is that, like you said, in that story, that story fit in with a value that people held. Yeah. And so they liked that story because it showed them their values that they believe in action. No. And that's something that is done in Japan with the 47 Ronin that's held up as this example of kind of an element of the Japanese spirit. It's like a uniquely Japanese story in in some of the ways that things play out. And if you understand this story, it's kind of said that you understand better, like the spirit of what it means to be Japanese. That's something that's kind of different from how the world sees things and does things. And so... It is such an interesting story because it's so different from probably the types of things that Europeans were experiencing in Europe that 
people were taking note of it. The first time we get it in English is in 1822, and a man named Isaac Titzing, who's actually Dutch, he wrote this book called Illustrations of Japan that had a lot of pictures. And this book wasn't a collection of tales. It wasn't a history. It was just kind of supposed to be just this collection of information about Japan because it had just kind of opened its borders to foreigners coming in. They were learning about the customs, traditions, what goes on in Japan. And he had like this very, very short, like one page description of the story of the 47 Ronin as kind of like the hist a historical event. Then later on, like 40 years later, there's another book called The Capital of the Tycoon, which was written by a man named Rutherford Alcock. And he was a British diplomat to Japan. And one of the things I think is really funny here is like, again, that title, The Capital of the Tycoon. Like the tycoon is like the shogun. But back when they were still like figuring this stuff out, like nowadays we incorporate so many Japanese words and we kind of understand what they mean. Yeah. And in his, again, very brief account, he's talking about these things, but he's using language that today seems very strange to us. In a sense, he calls the Shogun tycoon. He's talking about, you know, they take out their sabers. They're the nice errand of the Lords of Japan. You know what I mean? Like it sounds like it's taking place in medieval England or something, yeah, you know, yeah. like, with the, the feudal lords of medieval England, the way that they're talking about it. And it's just really interesting to see from our current day perspective, like how their understanding shifted before, because they didn't understand the Japanese words. Like, oh, of course, katana is the Japanese word that they use for saber. Yeah. I mean, but how oh, that's so fascinating to me is like a, like a translation situation, just because of like what we've talked about this year of like, when you read about ghouls yeah. in like Arabic writing, a ghoul like when you're trying to find an equivalent to like what you know, like a, a starting place for you or for your audience, I use the word like zombie, even right. though they're not equivalent. They're not the same. Right. Ghoul doesn't mean zombie, but it's the closest thing that we have. Yeah. And so this guy's like, um, how do I describe like, this sword. I'll say saber because I don't. Because it's a curved sword and that's the closest thing yeah. that we have. Yeah. And yeah, like the, the translation issues are interesting because it's like sometimes there just is not an equivalent word and that you just have to use the word from the culture because you're like, I don't have one, so we should probably use theirs or else you make the mistake of equating the two things together accidentally. Yeah, that is interesting. And it's interesting to see how they're ne negotiating the situation of learning new information. And as things go on, we become familiar with the specifics of what a samurai is, what a katana is, what a shogun is. So we can actually just use those words that mean a very specific thing. And it more clearly communicates because we don't have the baggage tied to saber, knight, tycoon. Yeah. <laughs> The other interesting thing about Rutherford Alcock's story, again, he, this was like a three-volume series, The Capital of the Tycoon, and he was just, again, gathering information about Japan, like the government, the people, customs, traditions, and just, just lots of information to relate back what Japan was like. And his story was also just a very brief overview, but he starts it in an interesting way that is very relevant to us, where he says, A strange history— Strange if true, and scarcely less so if invented. 
not less but more illustrative perhaps in the latter case, of the popular idea of heroism and poetic justice, as these are, moreover, exemplified in a hundred legends and traditions which form the staple of the Japanese theatrical pieces, their picture books, and their popular tales. So he hears this story, and he is even doubting, like, okay, this is supposedly this real-life event. Yeah. But it's weird, and if it's true, that's especially weird. But also, it's interesting if it's not weird, because if they made up this story, then it's very telling about this larger theme of the types of stories that they tell in Japan, which says something about their culture. And it's a combination of the two. Yeah, it's like, it's a true event. it's both. (laughs) Yeah, it's a true event that happened that says something very specific and real about Japanese culture because it did happen in certain ways because that's how the laws and the culture and things were set up. But also it was very fictionalized in order to provide a very specific point that is central to the legends and traditions and storytelling of Japan. So the next version that we get in English, I think is the most relevant to us for a couple of reasons. One, because it's in a collection called Tales of Old Japan by A.B. Mitford. And Katrina, I'm going to tell you this man's full name, and I want you to guess his country of origin. Are you ready? Yes. A.B. Mitford's full name is Algernon Betram Freeman Mitford, Lord Reedsdale. Where is this man from? Oh my gosh, this poor man. Um, Just like, what an incredible name. Say it again. Algernon Bertram Freeman Mitford, Lord Reedsdale. I'm assuming like England. Ding, ding, ding. That is right. Algernon. (laughs) It's like, of course, Algernon Bertram Freeman Mitford, Lord Reedsdale is from the same place as Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm so glad that he went by A.B. <laughs> yes. Hereforth, heretofore known as A.B. Mitford. And this collection was published in 1871, by the way. And he was another diplomat, a British diplomat to Japan. And like I mentioned earlier, his collection is interesting to us because it's mostly a collection of folklore, folk tales, fairy tales, superstitions, ghost stories, that type of thing. And he claims that these were translated and or adapted from Japanese sources. Either people were telling them to him and he was transcribing it and translating it. And he says that lots of these were, again, relayed to him orally. Like they were passing on the oral tradition as these particular people understood the story at that point in time. And he captured that. There is a lot to say that he was not just a transcriber and translator. In this story of 47 Ronin, some of the full clips that I will read from the book, it'll be very clear that he definitely was adding his own like kind of flowery language and his way of putting things. So there's a lot of doubt kind of cast on how faithfully this is even a transmission and translation of the Japanese tale and how much is his understanding and his spin on it. Yeah. But it's also one of the ones that has stayed around for the longest time. And one of the reasons too is because it's kind of a more full version of the tale. Like I said, those other ones were in books that weren't supposed to be stories. They weren't supposed to be telling tales. They were just informational and they did very, very short little snippets on them. And we'll get into a little bit more about him and his work after we tell the story and talk about it. All right. So with that, let's 
get into the story. One of the things that I think is really interesting about the story, this is also the first story in the book, which makes sense because it's the longest, but he goes on to, at the beginning of the story, introduce basically the whole book, and then he introduces the story, then he kind of starts the story, and then he really starts the story. And it's kind of like very telling of his style of writing and transmitting information that I just find delightful. Yeah. And also it shows kind of his love and like awe at the country of Japan, its people, its customs, and that sort of thing too, which is kind of like a cute thing to see. A.B. Mitford, the original weeb. (laughs) (laughs) So he starts off talking about some things I already mentioned about how for a long time, the Japanese had been very isolationist. Like they isolated themselves from the world, especially from Europeans, which isn't exactly true because they did have periods where they were like contact, but it was very minimal. Yeah, most of their most of their like foreign policy for a long time was isolationism. Yeah. Which and is so a at, choice that different yeah. countries make. Cause I'm like that I think there's a period of time in the US history where that was like the the focus yeah. as well. So Yeah. And A.B. Mitford makes a big point to talk about. It's like, oh, now the country is just barely starting to open up. We're having kind of this free exchange with people from Europe, from all over the world. And so they've started actually opening up about their culture and their history and stuff like that. And he makes a point to be like, I mean, like recently, like I'm not talking about the Dutch and the Portuguese and the other people that have been trading with them like for (laughs) hundreds of years. Just like now that we're here, the, the the British are here, like now they're really opening up, which I just kind of joke because really it is different. Like they really had opened up, let people in and were willing to share their things. Yeah, but, but he was, it, it's just funny because he's he's kind of uh, pointing to some like English exceptionalism. Yeah. 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 And he's, you know, just like, was like those times, those times don't count, which there is a valid point to be made there too, but it's just funny to maybe intentionally misinterpret him or maybe kind of call him out on a little bit of his, <laughs> his privilege there. But he did notice something as they're opening up and sharing, they were also bringing in a lot, you know, trade, how it works is things go out, things come in. And so Japan was rapidly changing. And in just the short time that he was there, he was noticing that change happening. And he was really afraid that some of this folk history, some of the tradition, some of the culture was going to disappear. And he's like, I want to capture this. I appreciate that kind of foresight. Yeah. So that was nice. And so he says here, kind of controversial statement, in my opinion, thus the Japanese may tell their own tale, their translator, meaning himself, only adding here and there a few words of heading or tag to a chapter where an explanation or amplification may seem necessary. And as you go into the story, you're kind of like, a few words here or there? (laughs) Okay. And so the story begins. And he says even, having said so much by way of preface, it's like, dude, seriously, because he talks so much just about all that. I beg my readers to fancy themselves wafted away to the shores of the Bay of Edo which is Tokyo, the eastern capital of Japan. When it was like split, there was the emperor was in Kyoto and the shogun was in Edo. A fair, smiling landscape, gentle slopes crested by a dark fringe of pines and firs lead down to the sea. The quaint eaves of many a temple and holy shrine peep out here and there from the groves. And that sentence, which does not have a period for 
Several more phrases goes on and on describing fishing boats in the bay, glowworms, the goblin haunted heights of Oyama, and of course, Mount Fuji. And then he goes on this side tangent about how like Mount Fuji is this inactive volcano, but the effects of that are still going on with the earthquakes that like open up. He talks about all these horrible earthquakes that had happened and how basically everyone lives in fear that Mount Fuji is just going to erupt and kill everyone again at any moment. But And you're like, <laughs> buddy, can we focus? <laughs> He's like, that aside, then he goes back in the midst of a nest of venerable trees in Takanawa, a suburb of Edo, is hidden Sengakuji or the Spring Hill Temple, renowned throughout the length and breadth of the land for its cemetery, which contains the graves of the 47 Ronin, famous in Japanese history, heroes of Japanese drama, the tale of whose deeds I'm about to transcribe. And that was a lot of quoting, but I just wanted to give you kind of an insight into his style. Yeah, a feel, a feel for yeah. the man. Um, because my style is going to be very different from that as I retell the story. So... You think he's going to start the story, but then he goes on to describe in very rich detail the temple, the graves of all 47 Ronin, adding plus one more that we'll hear about later, throws mm -hmm. out a little, a little hook for something that happens later. And then finally, the grave of their master, Lord Asano. And then he says, quote, and now for the story. And it's like, oh my gosh, finally, dude, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> and the story begins for real this time. At the beginning of the 18th century, like literally right at the beginning, 1701 AD, there lived a daimyo called Asano Takumi no Kami, who was the lord of the castle of Ako in the province of Harima. And this lord Asano and another dude, Lord Kame-sama, were appointed by the shogun to receive a representative of the emperor to the shogun's castle in Edo. And these guys not being from Edo, and not being like courtiers, so to speak, didn't really know all about like the customs and etiquette and all of that stuff. Like these guys were out in the country, like leading in samurai, trying to just keep their towns and their lands going, like making sure the farmers were safe, the whole land was taken care of. They didn't really have this sort of stuff going on. So they had to take lessons and they went to a man named Kira Kotsuke Nosuke, or just Kira for short. Which I'll point out now, in the story, A.B. Mitford tends to call them by their, like, first names. Or, like, for example, Kira Kotsuke Nosuke. The Kotsuke Nosuke isn't even his name. It's, like, a, another title. And so A.B. Mitford will call him Kotsuke Nosuke. But most other stories will call him Kira because it's shorter. And it's also more accurate and kind of more fitting with how Japanese would refer to them by the last name. Um, anyway. Yeah. So this Kira was a greedy... Son of a gun. It was a custom when you were going to be taught by him that the daimyo or whoever would bring gifts. And gift giving was and still is kind of a part of Japanese culture. And it was supposed to be kind of these tokens of appreciation for the training that they were receiving. But Kira was not impressed with the gifts that Lord Asano and Lord Kame gave him. So he didn't even bother to teach them that first day. Instead, he just absolutely roasted them, calling them like country bumpkins, that they don't know anything. And he just like was making a complete laughingstock of both of these guys, like in front of all of his buddies and the other people of the court. And Lord Asano, he was, he bore the insults with patience. He's like, okay, just got to get through this. 
This guy's yeah. got to teach me. I got to do the thing or else the Shogun's going to be mad at me. But Lord Kame was pissed and he decided that he had enough and he was going to kill Kira. So one night after his court duties were over, after he'd been mercilessly roasted by Kira for hours on end, he calls a secret meeting of his men and he's like, guys, Kira's done nothing but diss me and Lord Asano all week. It's like, I was so mad, I almost pulled out my sword and killed him right there on the spot, but I didn't because I knew that the punishment for so much as drawing my sword in the Shogun's castle would be death. And with that, the forfeiture of my lands, my family would be ruined. All of you would be masterless and you would be penniless and you would be ruined. But he goes on to say, but this guy is such a jerk that I can't take it anymore. Tomorrow, I'm going to go in, and if he insults me, I'm going to kill him, and there's nothing that you guys can do about it. And so one of Lord Kame's counselors, rightly a little concerned by this, (laughs) he's about to be masterless, homeless, penniless. He keeps his cool, not wanting to outright oppose the will of his lord. He's like, okay, you're the boss. I'll make the preparations for that, like... We'll pack up, get ready to go take care of the affairs back at the castle after this happens. And uh, tomorrow, if Kira insults you again, go for it. Kill him. That's what you want to do. That's fine. And Lord Kame is pretty pleased that everyone's like going along with his plan. And he sits up all night like a kid on Christmas, just waiting for the next day (laughs) so he can commit him some murder. Like a kid on Christmas, stayed up all night waiting to commit murder. Um, I don't know what your kids do on Christmas. <laughs> they set up all these adorable traps for Santa Claus. <laughs> like, I can't go to sleep. I'm too busy, like, thinking about the murder tomorrow. So meanwhile, his counselor, still super concerned by this plan that's going to happen, He's there anxious, thinking about how things are going to go down. When he realizes, he's like, hey, okay, everyone talks about this Kira guy and how he's just super greedy. He would totally be open to a bribe. So it would be better to pay him off, no matter what the price is, than to have our Lord's life, his house, and all of his money just be thrown away anyway. So he goes out and he gathers as much money as he can from, I don't know, like, the, the other man, whatever. He prostituted himself. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, he's like, whatever the price, I will pay it. And he goes to Kira's house with the gift in front of Kira and his servants. And he says, my master, Lord Kame, is totally grateful for all this great training you provided him. And he sends this humble, measly gift as a token of his appreciation. And so he hands over 1,000 ounces of silver for Kira and then an additional 100 ounces of silver to be distributed among all of Kira's retainers. And so Kira's men and Kira are pretty happy about this. And so the counselor's like, okay, like, my plan's probably going to work. He's not going to insult him. Hopefully my lord's, like, mind will be changed. And he's not just going to go in there and just kill him first thing. Yeah. So the next morning, Lord Kame, who wasn't excited, he was up seething and just angry about all the insults he'd borne from Kira, gets ready and heads to court thinking that he's going to kill him. And this is probably going to be one of the last days that he himself spends alive. And when Lord Kame gets to court, Kira greets him and his attitude's completely changed. He's super courteous. He compliments Kame for how well he's been learning. He apologizes for being such a jerk before. He's like, you know, like I'm a man of like bad temperament sometimes and you just caught me in one of those moods. I'm so sorry. And he goes on and on and 
Kame's like, oh, okay. Well, I mean, he's being cool to me now. I, I guess I don't have to kill him. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And so unbeknownst to Lord Kame, his house was saved by this clever servant of his. But unfortunately, Lord Asano, who had not sent a present the night before, arrived at the castle. And Kido only has one target on whom he can lay all the insults he's probably spent all night coming up with. And so Kido goes at Lord Asano harder than before. But again, Lord Asano, knowing he's got a very serious thing that he has to do for the Shogun, bears it patiently. And Kido, not getting any sort of reaction out of this guy, just tries even harder to get him to react in some way. And so Kido looks down and notices that one of the ribbons on his sock had come undone. And so he, in an attempt to humiliate Lord Asano, asks Lord Asano to retie the sock on his foot. It's like, Lord Asano is a daimyo. He's not like yeah. a servant. That, that job is technically beneath him. Yeah, yeah. but he's kind of like, I need this guy. He's being a jerk, but whatever, I'll do it. But his patience is wearing thin. And again, Kido seeing no reaction just starts insulting him again. And he's like, oh, how clumsy you are. This is a direct quote from the text. You cannot so much as tie up the ribbon of my sock properly. Anyone can see you're a boar from the country and know nothing of the manners of Edo. And with a scornful laugh, he turns to leave the room. But the patience of Lord Asano was exhausted. And that was when he snapped. Oh, no. So he calls out to Kira to get him to turn around. He pulls out his wakazashi, which is like the shorter of the two swords that samurai carry. And as Kira stops to turn around to face him, Lord Asano slashes at him with this smaller sword. And because of kind of the way that Lord Kira is wearing a hat, it kind of misses him and it just grazes his cheek. And Kira being like, oh man, I'm being attacked, starts to run away. And as he's running away, Lord Asano, Lord Asano, Slashes at him again, but misses, and his sword gets stuck in one of the pillars of the palace. And hearing all this commotion, the retainers of the castle come in, and they see what's going on. They see Kira's bleeding. Lord Asano's got his sword out. They'd, like, tackle him and kind of detain him. And so a council is called, and Lord Asano is sentenced to death, according to the law. Because even drawing your sword, let alone attacking a pretty high-ranking official of the court is punishable by death. But because of his noble rank as a daimyo, he is permitted to perform seppuku, which is like the ritual suicide. So he is sentenced to death, but he gets to do it as himself as show of like his noble rank. All his lands, his goods, his money, they're going to be confiscated and all of his retainers will become ronin. And ronin is like a masterless samurai. And Mitford has a footnote that's interesting here, and I want to know where he got this from. But he says, the word ronin means literally a wave man, one who is tossed about hither and thither as a wave of the sea. And if you look at the characters used for the word ronin, the first character does mean wave, and then the second character means person. So why it's wave person is unknown, but that's kind of like, I thought it was a cool little poetic twist. That might be true, or it might be embellishment by A.B. Mitford. I don't know. Yeah. So, enter Oishi Kuranosuke. He's kind of the real protagonist of the story now. So among Lord Asano's retainers, he was the chief counselor. He was Asano's right-hand man. And he, together with 46 other of Lord Asano's loyal retainers, formed a league to avenge their master's death by killing Kira. Oishi wasn't there 
at the castle wasn't even part of the group that went to Edo with Lord Asano when all this went down. Because yeah. as the chief retainer, he was back in Akko, their home, taking care of all the things that were going on there in their Lord's absence. But A.B. Mitford goes on and says, like, but if he had been there, this whole thing wouldn't have even happened because Oishi's great and wise and yada, yada, yada. Um, <laughs> but the fact is, Oishi wasn't there. And this so did the, happen. And this did happen. And so the 47 Ronin began to plot their revenge. But after that whole incident that went down at the castle, Kira is really on guard. He kind of expected that these retainers would come for vengeance because that's kind of like something that samurai would do, like see that as some sort of insult and take it upon themselves to finish the job that their master had started. Yeah. But Kira had a pretty large security force guarding him that was lent to him by his father-in-law, who was a neighboring daimyo named Uesugi-sama. And so the 47 Ronin decide, okay, we need to let things cool down before we take action. And so they go off not having anyone to serve anymore. Like they don't really have much of a choice. They have to get new jobs, but kind of under disguises and assumed names, they start becoming like carpenters and craftsmen and you know, graphic designers. I don't know. Start <laughs> doing other jobs. <laughs> and Oishi, their leader, moved his family to Kyoto, which is kind of known as a bit of a party town. At this point. And he starts drinking heavily, frequenting brothels, and just generally and very publicly getting himself into a lot of trouble. But this was all an act to throw off Kira and his spies because he knew that as the, the chief retainer of Lord Asano, if anyone was going to be plotting some sort of revenge, it would be him. Yeah. So he's making a real big show of this to be like, I, he's not a threat. He's not even thinking about revenge. Yeah, he's like, look, I'm just, you know, your regular degenerate. Yeah, so he's like, not only am I not just not thinking about it, it's like, but I'm fa- my life's falling apart. And so the spies of Kira, who definitely were there watching, go and report this stuff back. But inside, all that Oishi could think about was revenge. And man, if Oishi was just acting, then he was definitely what we would call a method actor. <laughs> one that would put Daniel Day-Lewis to shame because he was really out drinking and going to brothels and doing all that stuff. And one day he got so drunk that he just passed out in the middle of the street. And while Oishi was passed out in the middle of the street, a guy, a man from Satsuma, happened upon him and had this not-so-kind thing to say about him. Again, direct quote from the text. Is this not Oishi Kuranosuke, who was a counselor of Lord Asano Takumi no Kami, and who, not having the heart to avenge his lord, gives himself up to women and wine? See how he lies drunk in the public street, faithless beast, fool and craven, unworthy of the name of a samurai. And with that, he spits on Oishi and steps on his face as he walks over him and continues down the street. Like a kid on Christmas. (laughs) Like a kid on Christmas, just stepping on faces. (laughs) And... And Kira's spies are reporting all of this stuff back to Kira. And Kira's feeling a little bit safer. He's like, okay, like maybe things are fine. Maybe I overreacted. But he's still a little on guard. Someone who's not quite as happy is Oishi's wife. Because I told you he moved with his family to Kyoto. <laughs> and His she... wife isn't happy that he's drinking all the time and going to brothels? No. Man, she's 
kind of a stick in the mud. <laughs> and she knew she knew that it was all an act. She knew what was going on. But it still is disgracing yeah. her. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. But but also she felt that he'd taken it too far. So she kind of confronts him and she's like, I thought this was also supposed to be an act, but he's she kind of thinks that it's not really an act. He's just using that as an excuse or something. I don't know, but she's yeah. not happy. Yeah. And she should be unhappy. But Oishi, at her confronting him, he th- just flies into a violent rage. I don't think he, like, hits her or anything, but he starts, like, smashing stuff. And he starts yelling at his wife and telling her, like, I'm just divorcing you. Get your kids out of here. Like, oh, I don't no. want to see you anymore. But he was totally white fanging her. He still loved her. <laughs> he just needed her to get away because being close to him was putting her in danger. Because he knew that come the right time, they were going to go and get revenge on Kira. And the closer to that moment that he like separates himself from her, the more suspicious it looks like, oh, she knows. And he was just trying to keep her safe. Yeah. And so like Oishi's wife, totally grief stricken, leaves with her two younger kids and goes away. And she's like, again, like heartbroken. And Oishi is heartbroken too. Yeah. So I, I kind of doubt if white fanging is an actual thing that happens in real life. But if you have heard of someone that's been white fanged or you have white fanged someone write in and let us know because i want to know about it i don't believe it's real i don't think it's a real thing you you've never had to like break someone's heart so that they can go on to like live their their truest self no yeah i don't think i have either i mean i guess this is based on a true story maybe the actual way she did white fang his wife and in fact would be the original white fanger even before white fang was white fanged oh man so, so now everybody's gonna gonna use his name now yeah do you totally oishi that person <laughs> doesn't roll off the tongue very well it doesn't roll off the tongue anyway he white fangs his wife she takes the two youngest kids with her leaving only the oldest chikata is his name a boy of 16 years old who stays behind with his father One of the reasons that Chikata stays is that he is actually one of the 47 Ronin that's plotting the revenge. And he's the youngest of the group, again, at only 16 years old. But he's kind of in on this, and he knows what his father's true intentions are. So Kira's spies see all of this happening, or hear about it, or whatever, and they report back to Kira, and they're like, dude, this guy's life is a mess. His wife... And some of his kids left him. I hear he's taken up living with a concubine. He spends half his day passed out drunk in the street. Like him and his men are just a bunch of cowards that don't even have the courage to try to come and avenge their lord. Like you're going to be fine. And so Kira at this is like, okay, I really do feel safe now. Like who would put up an act of like sending their wife away? You know, like who would go to that extreme? I'll tell you who would go to that extreme. Oishi. (laughs) So Kita starts gradually sending portions of his guard back to his father-in-law. So phase two of the Ronin's plan begins. And some of the 47 start making their way to Edo. And they're still in disguise, kind of using their new occupations as a cover and also those skills to gather intelligence like the layout of Kira's house how many retainers are there with him how many of them and which ones are the good fighters which ones are kind of like useless um, even like who's who Kira's neighbors are and how they feel about Kira and they're secretly sending all this information back to Oishi in Kyoto because he's the one that's going to make the decision on when this will happen 
And so Oishi is really stoked because seeing that he's sending the guard back, he realized that he's letting his guard down. And it was finally killing time. We're in the end game now. <laughs> so they come up with a plan. And their plan is it's the middle of winter. That's not part of the plan, but it worked in their favor because they're thinking like, because it's winter, people are spending more time inside. There's a blanket of snow that's fresh on there, which kind of like deadens sounds. It's just a good situation for us to take advantage of in our plan to attack Kira at his compound. And so their plan is they're going to break into two groups. The first group is led by Oishi himself, and their goal is they're going to do a direct attack straight through the front gate and kind of draw the attention there. Meanwhile, the second group, led by Oishi's son, Chikara, who again is the youngest of the whole group at 16 years old, he's leading the other attack to go in and sneak in over the back gate to try to do like a pincer move into the center of the compound to make sure people don't run away, to be able to tell someone. Like, for example, like Uesugi, who is Kira's father-in-law, the daimyo has a bunch of men that he could send back to, to help out yeah, as backup. But because Chikara's only 16 years old, like there's another retainer named Yoshida who's kind of appointed to act as Chikara's guardian. And it's one of the things where Oishi's like, okay, yeah, I want my son to lead a group of men on a violent raid to avenge our lord, but just like, I want to know that he's doing it safely and responsibly, you know? So I'm <laughs> going to have this other guy go along with him. Um, so that's the situation there. And the signal to begin the attack, because the groups are separated, was going to be the beating of drums. That's the signal to start moving in. And then each one of the 47 got a whistle. And if they find and kill Kira, they're supposed to blow the whistle and everyone will gather at that point to identify him. And then they can make their way to Sengakuji, the burial place of their lord, Lord Asano, and present the head of Kira at his grave. And so once they got to that point, when they're at Sengakuji, they presented the head, completing their act of vengeance, restoring their lord's honor by completing what he had started they would voluntarily send word to the government and await their punishment which they assumed was going to be death yeah and they knew they knew going in that that was probably the end game yeah they knew going in was was ultimately this is the end for us this is our final move like we're going to die but our last act will be to avenge our lord and so Oishi, after going over the plan with everybody, steps up and gives a little pregame speech, which I find interesting because he says, tonight we shall attack our enemy in his palace. His retainers will certainly resist us and we shall be obliged to kill them. But to slay old men and women and children is a pitiful thing. Therefore, I pray you each one to take great heed lest you kill a single helpless person. It's like, we're not bad guys. We're not going in there to kill the old men, women yeah. and children. So then after that, they all put their hands in a circle, presumably. It's like, okay, murder on three. One, two, three, murder! <laughs> like kids on Christmas. <laughs> and then they break into their teams and get into position. So as they get into place, before they send the signal, Oishi sends messengers to all of Kira's neighbors, letting them know what's going on. And they're like, hey, we're not here for you. You're going to hear a ruckus. You're going to hear some violence. We're here for Kita. We don't care about anyone else. That's the only thing we want. We don't want any trouble. We're not going to bother you. You're going to be safe. 
And all of Kira's neighbors are totally cool with this. They're like, screw that guy. <laughs> we hate him anyway. Like, he's a tool. We don't like that guy. He's a jerk. He's just a greedy old man. So the neighbors are like, we're not going to send for help. We're not going to do anything. We're just going to stay in our homes and relish the fact that Kira's going to be gone and we don't have to deal with him anymore. Oishi also sends four men over the wall with ladders to ambush the gate guards to try to open the gate so they still can have somewhat of an element of surprise. So they'll be further into the compound before they meet any kind of resistance. And so the Ronin tie up the guards and they're like, hey, give us the keys so we can open the gate. And the guards are like, man, like we would, but we don't have the keys. Like they're in like the chambers of like one of the officers. Like we don't even have a way to get them. Meanwhile, a group of archers starts taking position on the outer walls all around the compound so that if any messengers try to escape to send word to Kira's father-in-law that they can take them out and not let them leave to get a message out because that would be very bad. And the, the Ronin back inside the guard gate are like getting really fresh and like, oh, forget it, we're just going to smash the lock and break in and get the party started. So with that, Oishi beats the drum himself to signal the attack. Oishi's group breaks the lock on the gate, bursts in, sending the sides of the gate flying right open, and they start fighting. Kira's men heard all this commotion. They gather their weapons and come out to meet them and defend their lord. But they see all these people coming in, and they're like, oh my gosh, Like we are not in a good situation to win this battle. And they try to send word to Uesugi, the father-in-law, for backup. But... Oishi had seen this possibility, so the archers are, like, taking these messengers out as they try to leave. So Chikata's team, who've been fighting their way through from the back gate or through the back gate, finally meet up with Oishi's group right outside of Kira's house. And they form just, again, one big group. And they're kind of still fighting, but in an attempt to get the men to stand down and the men that he knows are inside waiting for them, he yells out. He's like... Kira is our enemy. It's like, we don't care. We want to spare you. We don't want to kill anyone. We don't have to. Let one of us go inside and bring him out dead or alive. And that doesn't really work. So they just keep on killing. Yeah. And so the whole group of 47 who have not lost a single person make their way into the house right in front of Kira's private room. But between them and the entrance are three of Kira's best fighters. So our heroes have just reached kind of like the mini boss fight before the final boss fight. <laughs> the mini boss fight. And these 47 are going at these three guys. But these three are like fighting like lions, you know, and they're keeping the whole 47 at bay. And I'm sure the geography of the room has something to do with that too. Like you can't get 47 people around them. You know, only a few can come in at a time, but still like you have plenty of fresh people to send in. Like you should be able to wear them down. And Oishi gets really mad because he's like, how can 47 of us not beat these three guys? Like, yeah, they're his best fighters, but they're vastly outnumbered. Yeah. And so Oishi says like, what? He's like, did every man of you not swear to lay down his life in avenging our Lord? And now you're driven back by three men. He's like, you're cowards, not fit to be spoken to. To die fighting in our master's cause would be the noblest ambition of any retainer. And so with that, he turns to his own son, Chikara, again, 16 years old, and says, here, boy, engage those men, and if they're too strong for you, then die. Yipes. And Chikara is actually pretty, like, well, spurred on by these words. I don't know whether he's, like, excited or whether he's like, oh, well, time to die. But he grabs a spear... Again, just a kid, 16 years old, and he starts 
going at it with one of these men, one of Kira's best fighters. And so he can't really hold his ground very well. And soon he's beaten back by this guy out into the garden, which in a way is kind of a good thing because he's taken one man out of the fight inside. Yeah. But Chikara's not in a good spot. He loses his footing and he slips backwards and falls into a pond. So he's like pretty much toast, he thinks. And the enemy that he's drawn out comes in with his sword ready to give a killing blow as soon as he tries to get up out of the pond. But Chikara has a spear, so he's got a little more reach and he's able to cut this guy who's about to kill him on the leg, making this guy fall down, which gives Chikara enough time to climb out of the pond, draw his sword, and then deliver the killing blow to this guy that had pushed him out into the garden. Meanwhile, the other 46, presumably inspired by the fact that the 16-year-old kid is like taking on one of these guys by themselves. They don't want to be outdone. They start fighting hard. They kill the last two guards. And so no fighting men remained. True to their word, they spared all the women and children and servants and old men, kind of sending them off and gathering them in a shed or a shelter away from where the action was to keep them safe. And Chikara walks back in, seeing that the other two have been slain, still with his bloody sword. He goes into the back room himself to look for Kira, only to be met by Kira's young son, who is armed with a halberd and attacks Chikara, but it's like literally a kid. So Chikara like kind of fights back. The kid gets injured and runs away. So they don't have to kill him, luckily. Yeah. But the fighting really comes to an end then, and things grow very quiet. And Chikara's in Kira's private chambers, but there is no Kira. So it's like, where is he? Yeah, where's this guy? <laughs> Oishi divides his men into small groups and sends them searching the whole house, the whole compound. But all they can find as they go along are all these like women and children that they hadn't encountered before, and they're weeping. And the 47 start getting really disheartened. They're like, man, all this bloodshed for nothing. The one man we came here to kill is still alive. Like, he might not have been here. There's no way he escaped. And in their despair, they decide, okay, well, if this is it, like, we're just going to have to commit seppuku right here on the spot because we failed our mission. We need to make a statement. We need to go out with honor, having done our best. Knowing all along that this was going to end with their deaths. Yeah. In the last effort, Oishi, he's not quite ready to give up. He returns to Kira's room and is looking around and he sees the bed. And he puts his hand on the bed covers and feels that it's warm. So Kira had been in bed sleeping recently. So he's like, he is here somewhere. He's hiding somewhere. We have to find him. So excited by this news that they're not going to have to kill themselves quite yet, the Ronins start searching again. And then behind a poster of Rita Hayworth, they find a (laughs) tunnel (laughs) that leads to an outhouse. So one of the Ronin follows the tunnel down to find an old man cowering with a dagger. And the Ronin easily disarms him, drags him back into the house. And the group of Ronin that are there start asking him, he's like, what's your name? Who are you? And this guy, this old man, just refuses to speak. A few moments later, Oishi enters, holding a lantern, lifts the lantern up to the old man's face. And he sees that, in fact, it is Kida. Does he see the scar on his face? From And he knows that it is him because clearly visible on his face is the scar that he received from being attacked by their lord the year before during the attack at the castle. 
So knowing that they finally found this guy, Oishi gets down on his knees and very respectfully addresses Kira. Because again, this is a very high-ranking, noble official. Yeah, we can't be rude. To this man we're about to kill. And so he says, quote directly from the text again, My lord, we are the retainers of Asano Takumi no Kami. Last year, your lordship and our master quarreled in the palace. Like, And when he says your lordship, he's talking to Kira. And our master was sentenced to seppuku, and his family was ruined. We've come tonight to avenge him, as is the duty of faithful and loyal men. I pray your lordship to acknowledge the justice of our purpose. And now, my lord, we beseech you to perform harakiri. I myself shall have the honor to act as your second, and when, with all humility, I shall have received your lordship's head, it is my intention to lay it as an offering upon the grave of Asano Takumi no Kami. So, Kira doesn't really respond. But due to his high rank, the Ronin are still treating him respectfully, courteously, asking him, hey, perform Harakiri. Come on. Yeah. Do you want to do this the honorable way? Right. Or the dishonorable way? But Kira just crouched down, speechless and trembling. So seeing this, Oishi forces Kira down and cuts off his head with the very same wakizashi that their lord Asana had used to perform seppuku on himself a year earlier. And so the Ronin, now overjoyed at having accomplished their mission, got ready to go. But because they wanted to be good neighbors, a like funny a good detail. Neighbor, stay fa- oh, sorry. Like a good neighbor, they put out all the candles and fires in Kira's compound so that a fire didn't break out, spread to the neighbors, and cause unnecessary destruction. Which was cool of them. Yeah, very courteous. And so they walk to Sengakuji. And day breaks. They're carrying Kira's head in a bucket, and they're walking along, still with their swords drawn, clothes stained with blood. They're half expecting someone to come and attack them on their way because they know that that's the obvious thing that they would do next. And they're wondering if someone had gotten out to tell Kira's father-in-law to send backup, but it didn't happen. Instead, everywhere they go, the townspeople are coming out, and they're just absolutely marveling at these 47 Ronin. And it says, everyone praised them, wondering at their valor and faithfulness. So they just see and hear what they've done, and they just think it's amazing. And so when they came to their lord's grave, they took the head of Kira, and they washed it in a well nearby, and laid it as an offering before his tomb. And when they'd done this, they called on the priests of the temple to come out and read prayers while they burned incense. Oishi gave the priests the last of their money, and he told them, hey, we're going to die. We're going to be sentenced to death. When we die, we want to be buried alongside our Lord. And the priests just overcome with emotion at what these Ronin had done, agrees. And Oishi sends word off to the Supreme Court about what they've done, and they await their sentence. And the sentence comes back, very officially reading thusly. Whereas, neither respecting the dignity of the city, nor fearing the government, have leagued yourselves together to slay your enemy, you violently broke into the house of Kira Kotskenosuke by night and murdered him. The sentence of the court is that, for this audacious conduct, you perform harakiri. But, since, from the very beginning, they knew that this was the ultimate end, they didn't fear, and they met their death nobly, and... Their bodies were buried in Sengakuji in front of the tomb of their master. And when the fame of this had been noised abroad, the people flocked to pray at the graves 
of these faithful men, which you think would be the end of the story. But among the people that flocked to these graves was one man from Satsuma. He knelt before the grave of Oishi and said, When I saw you lying drunk by the roadside in Kyoto, I knew not that you were planning to avenge your lord. And thinking you to be a faithless man, I trampled on you and spat in your face as I passed. And now I've come to ask pardon and offer atonement for the insult of last year. With those words, he prostrated himself again before the grave and, drawing a dirk from his girdle, stabbed himself in the belly and died. The chief priest of the temple, taking pity upon him, buried him by the side of the ronin, and his tomb still remains to be seen with those of the 47 comrades. This is the end of the story of the 47 ronin. Man, that is such an epic story. (laughs) Yeah. I can see why it carried on for, like, the the tradition of the story and then telling the story and turning it into, like, plays and other, like, I'm assuming movies. Yeah, oh, there's movies. There's, like, a Keanu Reeves movie that came out. It's, like, made by, you know, American Hollywood Studios that is apparently just awful. Do not watch the Keanu Reeves one because it's just weird. But, yes, in Japan especially, there are movies that have been made, lots of movies and lots of plays. Like, it's just become a story that's told over and over and over again. One thing that I was thinking when you got to the end was was how different this, not happy ending, but this is a satisfying ending to the story, but how different this satisfying ending is from kind of what we expect today, or especially like in the culture that I am in, of what is considered a satisfying ending. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, since it it is a satisfying ending for when it, like it was, especially for when it was told, there's that that says a lot. Yeah about the culture that created the story that this is a satisfying ending. And I think that what it says about the culture is also like very beautiful. Yeah. Because it it, it talks a lot about like the honor of doing the right thing even when the stakes are very very high. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, and it's interesting too cuz all that couched in the fact that they're doing this for their master like it says a lot about how important that relationship is you know we think i i know i think as someone born and raised in the west you think a lot about like oh like i would die for my family like if a burglar broke into my house i would like be willing to get in front of them and be killed if i could stop the burglar from harming my family or whatever like you think about that a lot but it's like yeah would you feel the same way about like your boss at work or you know what I mean like it's a whole different thing and it is something that again was like very relevant and important to Japanese culture and Japanese history especially with how they got to the point where they were with samurai with the lords of different lands and and all of that Um, and it is I, I agree like really beautiful to see people so into a specific purpose that they'd be willing to put their lives you know, put their lives up for it. Yeah. What other reactions did you have to the story? Maybe specifically keeping in mind the fact that it's supposedly a true story. Do you have any thoughts or maybe critiques or criticisms of... Um, or just other reactions, period. 
I mean, one thing that I found really interesting was the amount that this group went to ensuring that their hands were clean from the crimes of hurting anybody who didn't deserve to be hurt. Yeah. Um, Like to the extent of like telling the town, Hey, this is what we're doing. Don't try to get involved. Cause we don't want to have to hurt yeah. anybody. Yeah. And the town being like, dude, go for it. Which it's like, Ooh, that's brutal. <laughs> right. <laughs> when your neighbors are like, yeah, we don't even care. They're not his neighbors. They're, I mean, they are his neighbors, but I'm assuming right. they're also like subjects in some uh, way, like to him or that he's, yeah. And then also that like when they were inside like the compound that they were making sure like that they weren't hurting any men, women or children. Not like, like non-fighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All old men, women or children that they like very much. There were a lot of lengths in the story to protect those who didn't deserve um, to be hurt. And I found that interesting because. I've noticed like in real life that is a lot harder to execute yeah. than like in stories. Yeah. Because it is like it it is hard to know when somebody is involved and not involved and yeah. Yeah. But obviously in the story it was important to make sure that these characters stayed as morally grounded Right. As possible so that you are rooting for them and so that they carry the message through the story that you that the teller would want it to. Because exactly. like you want to feel at the end like these men were good and honorable when in reality things are usually a little bit more messy where nobody nobody dies completely devoid of ever hurting another person. Yeah. Exactly. And so, yeah, to me, it's interesting that, I mean, knowing, like, that this is branded as, like, this is a true story, but then they're also almost, like, superhumanly good. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, you nailed it. Throughout the whole story, there's so many lengths taken to make sure that our heroes are heroes. You know, there's this is yeah. not Breaking Bad. These are not antiheroes. They are heroes. Everything that they do is justifiable. So from the fact that Kira is this greedy man who's constantly insulting people and like nobody likes him to again the great pains that they took to make sure that other people didn't get hurt, which from the historical sources that I've seen and things about it is true. They actually did take great pains not to injure women, children and you know old men or people that were not combatants. Yeah. Which is definitely admirable. But also it's like, of course, they'll include that in the story as proof, which and I think that was their intent. You know, their intent oh, was yeah. not to kill anyone that they didn't think needed to be killed. But at the same time, on this vendetta that they were continuing against Kira, they didn't have a problem killing these people that had nothing to do with it, except for doing what they would do in the same situation. Like if someone was coming to take vengeance on their own lord, they would have fought to the death for him. And in a way that's an honorable thing for them to do, but it's also like those people didn't need to die either. You know, yeah. I guess in this circle source, they say they're like, there were 18 like brave samurai that died so that these people could avenge their Lord. And those people didn't need to die. Yeah. But the fact that 
that's not really made a big deal of in the story. I think is kind of indicative of the fact that it's like among the culture, it's kind of like that was not a bad thing. We like we would we could think about that now. Like, oh, those people didn't have to die, but it was like, well, the the retainers are kind of an extension of that person. Yeah. In a way. Does that make sense? Yes. So killing them is justifiable because they're standing between you and getting the vengeance that you need. And they're kind of connected very deeply to that person. So some of the real life history, the truth, so to speak, I'm going to talk about right now, which is really interesting. And it does make it a lot more nuanced. And so I'm going to be going through jumping back between a few sources and I won't always like directly attribute it. But one of the big ones I read was an article called the Akko incident, which is lots of times what this is called in Japan because Akko is the name of the domain that Lord Asano was from. And this is an article by Bito Masahide. So he's like a Japanese historian, which I think gives a lot of weight and insight to his thoughts on it because not to say, you know, there are others from like British historians and American historians that I'll quote as well. Who, who I do believe have a good understanding of the history and culture and everything of Japan because they have spent a lot of time studying it. But it also, from a Japanese person, you can know that they probably really understand the nuances and, and intricacies yeah. of the Japanese culture. I mean, so, always when looking at, like, folks, folk anything, anytime that you can get as close to the in-group yeah. of a situation as possible is always good. Yeah. And then another source that I'll be pulling from is actually the foreword to a novelization of this story. So the novelization is put out. It's called The 47 Ronin by Tuttle Classics. It's in English, written by a guy named John Allen. And it's really cool. I was listening to the audiobook version of it. And it's like a, like a real novelization. Like it really goes in like you're reading a book. And a lot of the stuff is definitely invented. But he did take pains and efforts to add some of the stuff that we know historically now into it that it, we wouldn't find in this A.B. Mitford version of the story. Um, but in the foreword, I find it so interesting because Stephen Turnbull has some very h- harsh almost things to say about the 47 Ronin. And at the end of his like foreword to this book that's about it, he's like, so this is a fun and entertaining story, but just realize that these guys weren't as good as the story makes them seem like they were. This is fun entertainment, yeah. but it's not how it was. So the first thing that is important is that nobody knows why Asano attacked Kira. Nobody knows. He never said, or if so, no record remains. Yeah. And he was sentenced to death so quickly that he was never really like interrogated or interviewed about it because they didn't have to. He, without a doubt, drew his sword in the eyes of many witnesses. That enough was good to put him to death. So just to get an idea of the timeline, Asano attacks Kira sometime before noon. And so the order placing him in custody comes at 1 p.m., And then the execution order is delivered at 4 p.m. And then shortly after 6 p.m. is the ceremony of seppuku. So it's like within the time frame of six, six and a half hours, he goes from having committed the crime to being dead. Yeah. And it says, too, like, even Asano's retainers probably didn't know why their lord 
attacked Kira. All that was important to them was that he did. And the 47, they created a lot of records. As secretive as they were being with things going back and forth, one of the things that they had on them, each one had a copy of this kind of like almost manifesto saying who they were and what they were doing and why. But it didn't mention like, yeah. oh, the in, they mentioned kind of like an insult to our Lord, but nobody knows what that was. Yeah, what the insult was. Yeah, and to them it didn't matter. To them, yeah. their Lord had failed in his mission to write whatever insult had been placed upon him, and it was their duty to see that through as loyal samurai. Because if they didn't, then the, their Lord's honor would be sullied. And then for the retainers to ignore that would also bring dishonor on them as you know his like vassals his followers yeah so that is interesting it's like they give a very specific reason and you kind of understand it was like if someone was mercilessly mocking me like that i don't know if i would go so far as to kill them but i would want to punch him in the face for sure yeah the other thing bringing up that fact is that kira so kira kozunosuke yoshihisa was actually very well respected and pretty well liked in like the retellings. And there's kind of a genre that's come up called Chushingura, which is like the stories about the 47 Ronin. It encompasses like the plays, the poems, the movies, all that. Yeah. Um, and so Stephen Turnbull in his foreword to John Allen's book says that in Chushingura, Kira is an out and out villain. And he says that this is an attribution that is essential if his murder in this very suspicious circumstance is supposed to be transformed into this uplifting account of samurai virtue. But in actuality, Lord Kira was the shogun's master of ceremony. And by 1701, when this took place, Kira, who was 60 years old, he had served several successive shoguns loyally and reliably as the master and of the ceremonies of the court for 40 years. Yeah. So like he was getting the job done and he was liked by the multiple of these shogun, you know, it's like he would not have been around that long if he was that much of a jerk to everybody. Yeah. And in reality, Lord Asano was kind of a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) And Stephen Turnbull again goes on to say that Asano Naganori, the hero in the Chushingura, in reality, he was a self-indulgent libertine of 34 the descendant of great warriors, but was now found to be dissolute and pleasure-seeking, content to leave his domain in the hands of others. So it's like a spoiled rich kid that was living off of the borrowed fame from his parents and the people that had come before him, happy to let the hard work fall to other people, like Oishi and his other uh, retainers. Yeah. Which I thought was really pretty interesting. And again, you think about this fact, it's like, okay, he's 34 years old. And he's, like, attacking this, like, old man who doesn't make any attempt to defend himself, which is an important fact, too, because there is a legal standing, like, in Japanese law at the time. There's a rule about, like, vendettas. Like, you were allowed to go on a vendetta against someone legally and have that as, like, a legal defense. Yeah. And there's, like, a specific term for it as well. But the 47 Ronin, like, kind of broke and bent that definition in order to try to apply it to themselves because really it's about someone acting on behalf of the victim of some sort of attack, taking revenge on the person that performed that attack. Kira did not attack Lord Asano. If anything, it was the other way around. Yeah. So there's that problem. The second problem is that usually that person is 
a blood relative, usually like a son or nephew or like a blood relative of the person who was the victim of an attack, not a small army of well-organized samurai going after one dude. And uh, if anyone they could say that Lord Asano was the victim of, it would be the Shogun because he was the one that said that Lord Asano had to die. Yeah. But obviously they can't carry out a vendetta against the Shogun. So they really had to like do some manipulation of these ideas to make it fit their narrative. Yeah, because if I'm understanding you right, it's like because their master had been sentenced to this like self-execution because that had been like the sentence that had been laid down for the crime that he had committed. They can't legally qualify for a vendetta because this didn't happen in like a bar fight. Yeah. This, this was a death. Yeah. It was like, no, no, no. There was like a trial, even if the trial was just, very short, obviously, yeah. since the turnaround was very fast. But, like... Yeah, and just on the fact, like, exactly. you you were pointing out exactly right. Like, the fact alone that they were acting against the legal actions of the Shogun. Like, what they were just doing was going against the law. Like, the thing that they were opposed to was that their lord had basically died. But it was like, that was through legal means. So they were just, like, flaunting the law and saying, like, that didn't matter. So that's, like, one huge reason why they it was not a justified vendetta. And again, there's so many other reasons, like it's usually one person going after someone that was an assailant. And if anything, their Lord was the one that was the assailant against someone else, even though yeah. he happened to live. Another in, in my in my bar fight situation. Yeah, it's like the son of the person who was killed in the bar fight could go and find the guy who'd killed his dad in a bar fight. Exactly. And kill him. Right, and have a legal standing of, like, basically, as far as I understand, it's, like, no punishment, really. It's, like, that is okay. That's something that you're allowed to do because that was wrong what happened to you, and that's the law. That's how justice is done. Yeah. And another thing that was brought up is in some of the stories, they like to say that Kira was the one that pushed for Lord Asano to be executed. That Kira was the one that was wanting to push the sentence of death on him for attacking him, which can't be true because of how fast the situation happened like Kita was off and he was like healing. He was recovering from being stabbed in the face. So like he was not around. He was not part of that. Like he was being taken care of for his wounds. So it was like, he was not part of that thing. So even then it's like some of these stories try to say like, Oh, well he was the one that was pushing for it. So that's why we're going to go after him. It's like, and even that falls apart. Yeah. And an actual historical document that exists that's kind of like the equivalent of, you know, like a, a Supreme Court opinion, like a, one of the justices like writes an opinion on the case and they explain yeah. why something's going on. Yeah, but what it does is it makes it so that when people are looking back at why that decision was made, they have a, an idea yeah. into the mind of the Supreme Court when they made the decision that they made. Exactly. And that's exactly what this document is. So in the Akko incident by Bito Masahide, it says that the sentence of the Ronin to execution by seppuku is said to have been based on an opinion written by Ogyu Sorai, a Confucian scholar. And in that opinion, Sorai argued taking revenge on behalf of one's lord could be considered righteous in the sense that it manifested an awareness of samurai honor. 
it reflected only on the vantage point of individual morality. From the standpoint of the law, on the other hand, to engage in mass violence without authorization for the sake of one who had been punished by the Bakfu, which is the name of like the military government the shogun was the head of, was unacceptable. And thus, Oishi and the others should be punished by seppuku. So in effect, this argument granted that the ronin should be treated with due samurai ceremony and allowed the right of seppuku in recognition of their righteous actions as individuals, but also concluding that they should receive a sentence of death because it gave priority to preserving the authority of the law. So allowing them to die by seppuku was able to accomplish both ends. It acknowledges that what they had done was righteous from an individual standpoint because of the loyalty that they displayed to their Lord, but it was still unacceptable and against the law. So they still had to die. And that was kind of the way that they balanced it, which is seemingly what the 47 Ronin wanted. And it also seems to have worked because again, even as this historical documentation and all this stuff exists saying like, it's a lot more complex and complicated than all the stories and plays make it out to be. There is still a festival every year on December 14th, you know, anniversary of the night that that attack took place that celebrates the bravery and the righteousness of these samurai and that what they did was right, which is just so fascinating because I think, again, lots of that is based on the legend that has gone forth. Well, I mean, because even even if things weren't as like clearly cut and dry from like a legal standpoint, if the group of people that was like close or in that area, if, if popular opinion was like, no, I think they were right. I side with them. Even if things were a little bit more complicated, a little bit more nuanced than, than made it into like the stories. It makes sense to me that even people at the time would have been like, you know what? No, I think that, I think that was like the right thing to do. Because we see that, I mean, that still happens today where somebody might not technically be making a choice that you agree with, but they still are standing up for a value that you appreciate, even if they're not like the, you know, the the perfect hero. Yeah. If they're standing up for a value that you recognize and appreciate, it makes sense that, you know, you would still want to celebrate that value that that person stood up for. And through the years in the stories, they would slowly become a better and better version of themselves than actually existed. Yeah. Because the people, if they have like a a folk following, Uh you know, they're going to make their hero better and better in the story to more reflect the value that they appreciated. Right. Not necessarily the person. Yeah. But the value that they appreciate that person uh, exemplifying. And so all of the stuff that, you know, isn't related to the value will get like, you know, kind of downplayed and pushed down and forgotten through generations. Yeah. Yeah. But the things that are amazing about that person will get like bigger and more shiny and incredible. Yeah. So it makes sense that it would still be something that gets, you know, celebrated today because they are, it's not necessarily that they're celebrating the true event that happened so much as they're celebrating the values 
that they saw on display by that action. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I didn't, and I haven't thought about it that way. And it's like, as you were talking, I couldn't help but think of, again, the stuff that I'm familiar with as an American. There's so much of that that goes on as well. We hinted at some of it earlier with like some of our presidents, some of the things that have happened in our history. There's been a lot of really nuanced, complex things, some people that weren't the greatest people, but doing things in certain situations that upheld our American values. And we celebrate those things kind of through the people in the exact same way that you're talking about. So it's like, that is something that I think is is easy to imagine happening all over the place. And if you just kind of like look for it, I think it is, again, good to celebrate the values. And I think it's a great story and I love hearing it, but I also did love going into the history and I appreciated the nuance of it as well. Just like I do appreciate going back into the things and the stories that I hold dear and then looking back a little more critically and being like, okay, but it wasn't as cut and dry and as simple as that. There was more to it. And hopefully you can still come back to this place where you can find the balance between appreciating the story, the value that it has in, like you said, expressing values that you hold dear, while at the same time understanding the reality of the situation and how it was much more complex than it may have originally seemed when you were first hearing and learning about it. And so it reminds me of the quote that I found so interesting towards the beginning of this discussion by Rutherford Alcock, where he was talking about how the story of the 47 Ronin was a strange history of true and like even more strange if it's not true, because the point that he was kind of trying to make was whether true or not, the fact that it's a story that caught on like it did and was retold so much in so many different forms. And like you said, plays, picture books, popular, just oral retellings and now movies, even into the modern day, there's something about this story that resonates with people and is expressing something about their culture. So it doesn't matter if it's true or not. And it's all the more interesting, the fact that so much of it is true, but so much was changed and added or, you know, invented for the sake of storytelling and reinforcing what people are drawn to about the story in the first place. I love that you were the one that kind of like brought this topic to uh, me as like an idea to have on the podcast because I had like never heard of this story before. And it is so fascinating. Once again, like another example of how stories can tell so much about a culture. And this one is particularly interesting to look at because we have historical evidences that people have like looked up and gone through to kind of get an idea of like what is really known about this incident. And it's interesting to look at the differences between what historically is known happened and then what story features have either been kind of, you know, they've been amplified and made, you know, even more like bold and heroic because those differences between, you know, the historical and the legendary they show us like what was really highly valued the ideas of honoring the dead and leading honorable lives and even though that's a really hard thing to attain maybe perfectly in real life it was so beautiful to see those values exemplified through these samurai 
Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inge for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar. And been fighting their way through, fighting their way that way, fighting their way through from that direction. Why was it so hard to say? (laughs) I feel like my mouth does goofy stuff a lot more often than yours does. So I'm enjoying. Your mouth is just more opportunities. I guess maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. I just talk more. So my mouth goofs more.